practical and earthly needs. I think as Western churches, uh, we have become very much focused on praying for things. Nothing wrong, of course, in the right context, but I think we've lost something in our prayer life and somewhat missing out on an overlooked aspect of our faith. I think as we do petition and give requests to God, this might have come at the cost of just worshipping God for who he is. And when we look at James's death, I want us to see what drove him to be okay with the trials and death that would come. What basic principles of faith can we learn from knowing that God is sovereign in everything? Even if that means that one man should die and another rescued. That's what we'll read over these next two weeks. One man dies for the cause, one man is rescued for the cause. How can we learn to enjoy the activity of praying to an awesome God without necessarily coming for the reason of asking for anything? We do focus, as I said, so much on the verses that say, come and bring your request, come and bring petition God, and that's all great, but I, th I think we're just, we're, we're getting a bit mechanical, mechanical in our prayers, and I want us to just come back a little bit in just appreciating who God is. So let's, I'm going to read the two verses. Um, you must be so relieved, there's only two verses today, uh, which normal, you know, there's about 15 of them. Uh, but these two verses, it's Acts 12, 1 to 2. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Uh, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And these are the two verses we're looking at, um, specifically at, at James's death, uh, being put to death. So where are we? What's, what's the situation here? Um, it was during the Passover season um, that... At the same period of the year when Jesus himself was taken and crucified, um, but this is AD 44. Uh, these events uh, occurred about 12 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the church had been growing and expanding during the 12 years, spreading out to Judea and Samaria, and then beginning to reach the Gentiles, uh, as we saw in the last chapter. Herod the king moves uh, to take James, the brother of John, and to behead him with the sword. This, is the, this Herod is the brother of, the Herod, of Herod that Jesus appeared in front of, uh, known as Herod Agrippa. Um, he was a grandson of Herod the Great uh, and nephew of Herod the Tetrarch. It's Tetrarch. Te Tetrarch. It is, isn't it? Strange name. I don't know how to pronounce it. Tetrarch. Yeah, anyway. James was, uh, but James was an important leader in the church. Um, his brother was John, and these were the brothers whom Jesus affectionately called Sons of Thunder, which is just an amazing name to be given, isn't it? Um, because of their passion, because of just how, how devoted they were to wanting to, to serve Jesus. And, and they're kind of a bit rash. They're a bit, they just, they want to, and we'll see that in these verses that Jesus, when Jesus speaks to them uh, in, the ha in their house. Uh, and just see just how passionate they are for Jesus, yet not fully understanding what Jesus is 100% saying to them. But we'll, we'll get to that as well, just to, so we can get this bit of background. Uh, James was the first of the apostles to die, and John was the last. But the event of James's execution was not wasted. It had purpose. Uh, and you see, Herod was a man that was after popularity. We see after this, just I think it's even the next verse, uh, that she says, because the Jews liked that, because the Jews were impressed with what he had done, he then goes after Peter. 
So we know this man, uh, this Herod, is very much after popularity. He's very much a, not, not necessarily a people pleaser, but for the sake of keeping peace in the kingdom that he rules, uh, he would do these things. And so uh, the first, when he saw that it impressed them, he went after Peter, which we'll, we'll, see, we'll see next week. Uh, Herod was a politician who, when in Rome, lived like the Romans, when in Palestine, knew how to court the Jews. He observed the Jewish feasts and sacrifices. Uh, he knew that to keep Rome happy, he had to keep the, keep the Jews happy. He viewed the Jewish Christians as disruptive, as many did at that time. He didn't want this, this upstart sect to disturb the peace that he had worked so hard to establish. And so he wants to keep everyone under control. So if there's ever a chance, where, if there's ever an opportunity to do something that appeals to the bigger part of the population, Herod would do this. Uh, at, at any cost, he would want to keep peace because he wants to rule. So he arrested a number of the Christians, had James beheaded, and then when he saw this favorable response, he planned to repeat the process uh, on Peter. The problem was when, when Herod decided to start this and take James, he, he decided to, maybe knowingly or partially unknowingly, <laughs> he was attempting to take on God. He was attempting to take on what God was doing in that time. Psalm 2, verse 1 to 4, says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in, uh, in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Just to give you a sense there, just to maybe um, spoil the ending, uh, Herod's not going to win. Uh, towards the end of this chapter, you'll see what happens to Herod uh, at the end uh, of this, and it's not a nice ending for him. Um, but this sense of him trying to take on God, but in the psalm what we're reading here is that uh, no one is able to take on God. No one is able to defeat his purposes. No wicked act, not even the slaughter of the righteous takes place apart from the sovereign will of God. And so you might ask, why does God allow James to die? Why is James allowed to die and Peter allowed to live? When, when we became Christians, the one thing we should have acknowledged and we should have learned about before we, we decided and, and accepted Jesus was that God is sovereign. That means uh, what he does is is for his own glory. That means everything he does is for his purposes, even if we don't agree with it. Even if we see something go, that's not fair, that's not right. How can one, one good Christian, good Christian, how can one good Christian die and another Christian live? In, in, in not just this text, but in many texts, that happens a lot. Christians die and Christians, some Christians are rescued. Some Christians live and some Christians die. The challenge is, is not for us to look at this and go, but why, God? And you're allowed to do that, by the way. You're allowed to ask why, which is just amazing. He's allowed in grace. You're allowed to just ask God in, the, in, the, in, a, in, in a way of submission to him. Be careful how we ask God these questions. 
But at the same time, when we became Christian, the one thing we acknowledged was that God was ruler over everything, is ruler over all things. And whatever he does is for his purpose and for his will. God allowing or not allowing of events and actions against Christians is of his will and plan that we accepted and acknowledged to be right and true when we gave our lives to Jesus. When we read the Bible, when we read the Bible, we accept God's actions for what he did. But we know that this many people don't, and when they read it, they think God is a God of um, is is just for, out for himself in a, in a selfish way, in an evil way. People call God all sorts of things when they pick up certain sections of the Bible, when they pick and choose their way through the Bible that fits their own argument. But when you read the Bible as a whole, when you read the story of God, not of his people, but of God, you start to understand it's more than just picking out what's good and evil, what you might think is good and evil. Everything is for the purposes of God's kingdom. But it's not that we don't seek revelation in what God has carried out and seek clarity on these things through prayer and the word. It, it's allowed. You're allowed to seek clarity. In our own lives, when things don't go quite how we want them to, you're allowed to ask God, but why? You're allowed to. Absolutely. As Christians, we're expected to know better in the sense of how we do that. We're expected that we should come in reverence and submission to him when we ask those questions. Because there is an answer in there, and God might reveal that to you specifically, but the answer always is because I am sovereign. And that you're never going to get around we're never going to be able to get around that if we think that there must be another reason. There isn't. Oh, the camera's just gone off. <laughs> Sorry, everyone at home. You just have to look at the screen. Um, but there isn't. There's, there's, there's just the sovereignty of God. When the Christians heard about James being killed... I'm sure they were praying for him beforehand. And I'm sure, as we will see with Peter, they're also aware that James and Peter might not even come back, and we'll see that too. And that was if God's will was to, was to make it so. If it, that was to be the case that both Peter and uh, James were not to come back, then so be it. But for us, can we find joy and deeper relationship with God if our prayers are not about wanting a specific outcome there's, there's a there's only one line in this whole text that says that the church prayed for um, for peter and yet when you read the whole text uh, many people use this as a way to say this is how the church should be praying and yet when you read all of it in context they don't believe just to skip ahead a little bit they don't believe that peter is even standing at the door when he survives so when we use this as a means to say, this is how we should pray, I'm not sure we're reading it in the right context. There's always going to be doubt in us when we pray. There's always going to be issues when we, we want something, but it doesn't come about. So maybe we need to just roll back a little bit and say, maybe I, I need to get back to worshipping God and find out who he is and worship for who he is, rather than going, I need to have a reason to pray for something. 
The only reason I pray to God is to pray for something. We, we need to appreciate, as I have probably seen in these Olympic Games, called the process. If, if you've ever seen the interviews after each event, they go, how did you win this medal? How is it you did so well in this event? And nearly every single athlete says, I just went through my process. You see, what they're not doing is, is they're going, I, I did this to get a gold medal. They're going, I just, I went through the process, not thinking about necessarily winning a medal, although that is the point of it. But what they're investing themselves in is the process, is the part where they're taking part in doing the thing, getting ready for the games. And I think there's an application there for us, for church, to pray, that we're praying in the process, not about what's at the end of that. I want to pray for the outcome. Why don't we just pray about a gracious, awesome God? Why don't we get back to where that first love is? The prayers that we see, the songs that we see in the Psalms. Can we find this deeper relationship with God if we maybe look to just worshipping and loving God in our prayers? I think we have lost that in Western Christianity. We're told by certain sections in Christianity that deliverance from any trial is ours if we simply claim it by faith. We need to think through that logic for a second. If someone prays for something to, in a big event to someone to not, something to not happen to someone, and then it doesn't come about, the prayer is not, let me say in quotes, answered, how do you deal with that if your mentality is that, well, if we just pray for deliverance, it will happen? As if we have some sort of say in what God does, like we're equally sovereign to him. That's not how it works. And what happens to your faith when, when if, your, if your focus is on, if I pray for deliverance and, I, and God will just do that because I'm praying for it, and it doesn't happen, it, doesn't, it keeps never happening, what happens to your faith? When you're rooted in just, I can ask for it and God should do it because I've asked for it. I think our faith will slowly whittle away because we've misunderstood the sovereignty of God. We've misunderstood our partaking in what it means to be a Christian and to pray to God. We need to get, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to get back to enjoying the process of prayer. Not praying for the sake of reward or certain presumed outcomes. 2 Chronicles uh, 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do you know what we can focus on too much in these verses? That last verse, that last section of that verse, the reward. Oh, if we just do this, this, and this, we'll get this. Just, just do this, this, quickly. Ugh, it's a horrible bit. Let's get through it. We'll get, we'll, do, we'll get this reward at the end. We can be far too result-orientated in the Western church when we petition and request in prayer. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
think I've done six, yes. Don't think I've got seven on there. No, I haven't. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, and thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which is past all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the whole verse. I don't know why not the rest of it's not there. But the verse tells us not to pray and petition for some specific outcome. But that when you do petition and pray, that petitioning and prayer and requesting to God will in itself give you peace of God and guard your heart. It is not the outcome that God is asking us to pray here. He's saying, if you do pray, if you do petition, that very petitioning, that very thanksgiving will be the peace that you will need. The outcome is the outcome. Whatever will happen there, you will understand because you will have peace from God because we have come to him and he has given that because we have requested, petitioned him. And we go, but Lord, we surrender it to you. Whatever your will in this situation, let it be your will. Didn't Jesus teach us that? He said, that, he, he, said he asked the Father to take the cup from him if it wasn't his will. If it is his will, then so be it. Jesus teaching us the right way to pray. It is God's sovereignty that gives us peace it is not the outcome of the prayer that gives us peace let the prayer be the peace that you seek not the outcome you desire get your peace from the process not the result the problem is maybe we just think if i just go through the actions and feel bad for a little while then I will see the reward God promised me. There is a, a quite, a, not a very good practice going around in churches today, which is to, there is a, a, a practice that is, I suppose, known as um, when, we, when we speak into God's promises. And we need to be careful here. There's, there's always good, good reason to look at God's promises. But my worry that I'm, I'm finding that I'm seeing is that we're, we're tending to say the, cl the, the, t the claim it way of doing it. That promise is for my life and I'm going to have it and God's going to make it happen because he promised it and it's for me and therefore it will happen. We're starting to take all the promises of the Bible instead of putting them in context, whether they're, they've happened already, whether they're happening now and whether they're for the future, we're kind of losing the context of these promises and what the church is doing is starting to say, to feel better, just keep claiming the promises. But what happens when we read about the promises in God's word that don't specifically, when we do incorrectly apply them to our specific situation, and then they don't happen? What happens to our faith when that doesn't happen? Again, we're in the wrong place in our faith. We're not growing and what happens is we trust in something that's actually not biblically correct. 
And what you get in your experience as a Christian is a God in your perception that keeps letting you down. That's what happens. Because what we're doing is we're taking promises and then making them earthly. We're making them worldly. We're saying, but that's for me. God said, that's for me. That's for me. Is it for you? Or is it for the glory of God? Is it for the sovereignty of God? Is it down to his will? It's down to his will. The answer is, it's all about him. So we have it all the wrong way when we look at it like that. When you read this verse again, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, just look at this section here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We are a people called into God's family. Let me, let me explain this section by section in these verses. That first part helps us with the next part. You're called into God's family. That very calling into God's family should humble us like to death. Who are we to be called into God's family? Who are you or me to, to, be, to be deserving of God's family. That should humble us. So that first part helps us with the next part. Humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face. This is the part we should be basking in. This is the process we should be enjoying. I know that sounds strange when we talk about seeking forgiveness. We're talking about turning from their wicked ways. But we're not doing how Mary's here. We're not checking lists off. We're not checking things off that we say, I've done this, I've done this, now I get this. I've done five of these, ten of these, twenty of these. God's not impressed by that. And it's not a relationship. We are engaging in a conversation with the almighty king of the universe. That's why we need to rediscover loving the process. God does not love his people less, even when he makes commands like this. In fact, it is because of his abundant love that he makes commands like this. James was not loved less because God allowed him to be killed. James had victory whether he lived or died. Romans 14, verses 8 to 9, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Do you see something in common with those two statements? It doesn't matter. They're for the Lord. Whether we're living here or if we die, they're for the Lord. Nothing changes of our status. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I like to think that's what James is doing. I've been doing what God's doing. I've been telling people about Jesus, and it doesn't matter that I die right now. It doesn't matter that they execute me, because I belong to the Lord no matter what. Verse 9, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. James has Jesus no matter what state he is in. 
Paul in Romans shows us that we are not to measure our success in faith by the status of our physical body. James did what he was called to do, to share the gospel to as many as possible. He lived and died for the Lord because he belonged to the Lord. As difficult as it may be, we need to view death from God's eternal perspective and not from our temporal perspective. When you think about James, James's death in the light of Matthew 20, uh, verses 20 to 28, it takes on special significance. There we read that James and John, with their mother, had asked Jesus for thrones, but Jesus made it clear that there can be no glory apart from suffering. Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28, then the mother of uh, Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it, what is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the, ten, uh, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave." just as the sons of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The sense of copying, commanded to, called to copy Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, dying on a cross. It does mean dying to self. It does mean that we accept everything that Jesus did, and so we want to live to what he did. It says, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? And they said, we are able. Their bold reply was, we are able. Now, it's probably true they didn't fully understand what that meant. But I think they had enough to understand the gravity of what was being asked of them. Especially once we get into Acts, I think they, they fully realized what Jesus meant. You see, when we look at this verse today, we know for sure that Jesus was making sure they knew what it meant to give their life of service to him. So we know what it means. When we do when, when we do when we trust in Jesus, can we really drink from the cup that Jesus has drank? When we trust in him, can we really do what he done? don't mean dying on a cross, but I do mean dying to ourself and making Jesus the priority. Jesus was telling James and John that they could not shortcut or skip to the end. But on the way, whilst the road would be full of danger and strife, what they had already received was eternal life in Jesus. He said to have that, then you will have to learn how to be a servant to learn that there is no glory apart from suffering. The two go hand in hand. But also, 
to enjoy being a servant. Christianity is often painted as a kind of, we're, we're just so lowly and just so downtrodden all the time. Jesus is turning this on its head. In a weird way, the word servant, if we think about it in, the, in, a, in a worldly way, <clears throat> it is a bit downtrodden. But when Jesus takes this word servant, we are serving him, but we do it because we enjoy it. It's, it's a strange paradox. Do you want to serve the king or do you want to serve the enemy? A slave to Jesus is different from a slave to the enemy. If we truly believe that victory is in Christ, then we are the most privileged servants of all. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was a privilege. It was a sharing of the very cup which Jesus drank. In his early death, James was privileged to be the one, one of the first to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. In his death, he glorified his Lord and shared in his glory. By his death, he went to glory. James did not get the raw end of the deal. So I want us to relearn how to enjoy praising the Lord here. I want us to be sure that we're keeping our petitions in balance with our praise. Maybe sometimes we could come together just to read scriptures and praise God for who he is and for no other reason. Have no other motive than to sit together and just tell stories about God. How weird is that in this world today? I'm going to end this sermon with this psalm that I think will help. Uh, it's so relevant, not to the, only this sermon, but to uh, next week's one as well. But I think it'll help us practically and spiritually in our effort to focus our praise on him first and for his glory first. Uh, it's Psalm 63. I think I have it. I do. <clears throat> it says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. That's what they did in Acts, by the way. It says they, sometimes they say they earnestly prayed. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I'll be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. That for me is just some amazing psalm. It is beautiful in its picture, but it is real in its words. Let's pray, and then we'll have some worship time where we just come together and actually worship God. Let's pray.
Lord, we just want to thank you today that you, you're always ready to receive our praise. You're always ready to hear our prayers. And Lord, we, we want to be we want to be Christians uh, who are not tied to the things of this world or, or that things determine our relationship with you. But we, we don't want the treasures of this place to determine our relationship with you. And so, Lord, I just pray that we will seek maybe just to going back to basics of just worshipping your name just praising you, just reading out who you are, reminding ourselves how great you are, how awesome you are. Lord, we, we do thank you for all the things like Bible study and digging into the word more. And Lord, but before all that, Lord, teach us how to just have that abounding love, as it says in Psalm 63, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Lord, I, when I read that, I'm not sure that happens all the time. I'm not sure that's what it feels like because the world is just so, yeah, it's always trying to, to take us away, always trying to distract us. But Lord, I pray that you'll teach us, Lord. Teach us how to thirst for you, how to just want to know that our God is there, is, is living, is active, is doing stuff everywhere, is, is absolutely working out your plan. Lord, remind us that we don't need a reason to come together and pray other than to worship our Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you that you, you invite us with all the other stuff, the requests, the petitions, all, all the things that are on our hearts and minds to, to lift you and pray for people, pray for circumstance. Yes. But Lord, will you help us to come first to just enjoy again, just enjoying you, enjoying your presence, enjoying the character of who you are. Lord, just bring some balance to our praise and worship. Bring some balance so that we're always in reverence to you, Lord. We're always coming in reverence and not as uh, just, I don't know, some equal. <laughs> Lord, Forgive us when we treat you like you're our mate. You're our father. You're our Lord and Savior. You're better than a mate. Lord, just want to praise you now as we come to worship you. Hear our prayers of our hearts. Hear the prayers in our minds. and Hear the prayers just for our singing, Lord. Uh, as we, we just want to worship you today. And thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all these things. Amen. <clears throat>